0: Hi there and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Elena Melkart. Elena is an incredible president at Energia Consulting and a fellow podcaster as well, which is an amazing, actually. I've listened to your podcast quite a few times. It's quite amazing. Elena, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes, thank you. I'm delighted to be here
1: with you today, Michelle. I'm um, Elena Melkert. I'm the president of Energia Consulting LLC, a small business that uh, is uh, focused on helping my clients become more competitive for the vast amount of research funding available through the U.S. Department of Energy related to energy transition. So, as part of my work as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy, one of the things that I found so frustrating was it'd be a great idea, new invention, some something really creative, uh, low technology readiness level, but I couldn't. Choose it and have it be part of the portfolio, the research portfolio I would be building for that period, because the proposal was not well crafted. Great idea, technically sound, but there's many, many pieces to a federal proposal, research proposal. So, I thought, if I ever have a chance to help people, I'm going to help them. And so, when I retired, I founded this small business because I couldn't stay away. <laughs> Retirement didn't take. And, um, and, I've, and I've been very happy uh, with clients, and
0: there's definitely a need for this, so I'm, I'm happy to do that. No, that sounds amazing. So how did you get started in the energy sector then?
1: Oh, in the energy sector. Okay, so I'm from California and uh, went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and my undergraduate degree was in soil science. I took physics. As part of the curriculum and my, I guess everybody has to take it, you know, at at that school and my physics lab partner was my future husband. I didn't know it at the time. Anyway, he graduated a year before I did. He got a job in Bakersfield, California, which is a giant oil uh, province for the nation, um, especially for California. And so when we got married, I moved to Bakersfield, obviously, and I had two choices for career. One was related to agriculture because of the soils. The other, it turned out to be, was in oil and gas. And so the Getty Mining Company hired me, used my soils background and skills to uh, be part of a team that was comparing two processes for the extraction of oil from a surface deposit of diatomaceous earth in Bakersfield. Bakersfield is just so prolific in terms of oil and gas that sometimes there are seeps to the top, to the surface, and, you know, you know, the soil absorbs it and the like. Anyway, so diatomaceous earth, diatoms are little silicon-skeletoned, water-based uh, ocean-based biologists, I'm sorry, I apologize apologize to you for messing up what a diatom is, but the point is is that silicon structure um, skeleton is highly porous. And so here you have this highly porous medium in you know, amongst a highly oil uh, rich arena. and so the diatoms would absorb the oil, real high porosity, you know, infinite permeability. So there was this huge deposit. of oil-bearing diatomaceous Earth just outside of Bakersfield, California, and Getty Mining Company was looking after that. So I was part of the laboratory team there, and that's how I understood uh, the relationship of uh, the geologic structure all the way from the surface, surface all the way down to pay zone, if you will. Getty uh, gave me a, an opportunity to move to the oil and gas company And I said, I was, you know, was interested as an engineering technician. Then I was looking at uh, um, an MBA program. I, I entered and they said, well, instead of MBA, you should consider petroleum engineering and we'll pay for it. So they put me into a program at the University of Southern California. Some of the classes were taught in Bakersfield by, you know, USC professor, professors and associate professors. And then and half of the curriculum, uh, half of the work was in in uh, Los Angeles at USC. So and they gave me a car and I wasn't the only one. There was, you know, a team of us who would go over the mountains from Bakersfield to Los Angeles for this Petroleum engineering cu- cu- curriculum. And so I finished, you know, finished this work. In the meantime, Getty Oil Company was purchased by Texaco USA. And now, you know, people who are new to the industry, Texaco was purchased by Chevron. So that's sort of the, the lineage there. I was in the uh, production side at Getty Oil Company and with Texaco. And then with the Department of Energy, I was hired as a production engineer for a shallow deposit of, um, of oil, like a thousand foot pay zone and uh, the shallow oil zone, Potter Stand. And then I was had the privilege of moving over to reservoir engineering after about a year. And I loved reservoir. That is my calling. I, I am a reservoir engineer. <laughs> That's what I do. And then I had a chance to go to Washington, D.C. for a leadership program with the Department of Energy. And so moved to Washington D.C. and then eventually became the director for upstream oil and gas research. You know, and I have a career in the oil business of 41 years. I have almost 42 now, and and uh, worked for the government for like 36 years of those. My time in Bakersfield was all in commercial oil field operations, production, and and like I said, reservoir. Partly in the about four years in the private sector, and then four years with the federal government. So, but my whole career is. Primarily with the federal government. And so, and I retired in uh, 2021, in August of 2021. And like I said, it didn't take, I was always online looking, you know, following seminars and just, you know, LinkedIn, who, oh, there's a seminar over here, Society of Petroleum Engineers, you know, just was very uh, connected to it. And my husband says, oh, you're not ready to retire. You should, you should do something. You should form a company, you know, a lot of people. And so I did. And so that's where
0: we are now. (laughs) <laughs> so you you've decided not to retire is that was that a big decision for you or were you just ready yet so retiring was a big decision not retiring was easy
1: because I don't actually work full-time I take on projects and clients as I as I like I work on projects and so they have start and stop so I have a lot of free time perhaps at odd times uh, but I I'm Fully engaged with what I do, and it's still related to research. I guess what I really missed was the brain candy. Working, um, you know, in terms of policy, technology interface, the research translating concepts, if you will, for people outside the oil and gas sector who, you know, at the Department of Energy and and for the federal government. I had a a short stint at the White House as well. But translating, you know, what technology options, what what policy options are created by technology, and then pursuing a research portfolio that would execute on policy options that were, were or policies that were that were put into place so so that policy technology interfaces where I've always worked or most of my career has been and it's just been just really fascinating domestic as well as international so
0: okay because you were saying before the right at the beginning of your career that you were involved in I think it was reviewing the technology to, if I'm even getting that right. To yeah, re- yeah, no, I, I'm sorry, I did confuse you. So, so <laughs> how uh, you <laughs> extract the, on how you ex- extract the oil from the from the soil. That must have been fascinating. It was, it was. So that was my intro
1: to oil and gas. As a soil scientist, the ore, which was surface, right, soil, was processed through two, two plants that they were comparing. One was a retort process heat, sort of like huge distillation column, you know, like nine stories of distillation column and then pulling the out, the oil out in one, you know, one feed and then the spent ore in another feed. They were comparing that with a solvent process, wash tanks, move the ore from tank to tank to tank and then leaving the oil behind and just sort of washing it out of that ore. That was my exposure to the oil business. I didn't know how they produced oil, but it was for Getty Mining Company. They did know how to produce oil, and so they were doing this experiment. And then I had the opportunity to move from this pilot project into mainstream oil and gas production for Getty Oil Company. Very beginning of my career as an engineering technician, working with the field, working with the engineers, and really just really boots in the field for like eight years. Worked four years for Getty Company and then moved to the Department of Energy at a giant oil field that the government owned in partnership with Chevron USA called Elk Hills.
0: So I'm sorry for that confusion. I just, you see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, but it must be, but starting off with with such a major such a major role in the oil and oil industry you must have seen such a long a lot of uh, technology changes over the years
1: oh yes absolutely i think the most dramatic change now these days is considered quite mundane but we did not have you know pc personal computers When I started my career, everything was, you know, pencil, a spreadsheet was a lined piece of paper with a thousand columns, a thousand rows that you fill in with a pencil. That's how we did, you know, some of these big calculations was just, you know, each column sort of multiply, divide, and whatever. That translated into so the first spreadsheet I used was called Lotus, one, two, three. And that was sort of the very beginning. So having computer to do word processing, certainly, you know, PowerPoints, you know, being able to ease communication as well as these calculations was really, really dramatic. I mean, I was was witness to some of the very earliest uh, digitization maps, base maps, various kinds of maps, logs, whatever, in order to start into the modeling sector. When I worked on a computer, when I first started, we didn't have, there wasn't a PC. There was only mainframe with terminals that you would kind of go and use a terminal. We didn't have our own terminal. We had to share a terminal. Like four or five of us would share a terminal. These are strategically placed terminals around the building for us to be able to access and input data. And then just, we have to wait a long time for results. I mean, it was just very, very cumbersome. So then the next thing was the advent of, um, personal computers uh but again it wasn't a um it wasn't as sophisticated as a laptop it looked like the first one i had was like the size of a, a sewing machine <laughs> i don't know if people know what that looks like but maybe by you know two by three uh feet clunky old thing to carry it around uh you know was uh what you know port a mobile a mobile computer you know having a you know pc at your desk was you know in between that time. But it, but right now, I mean, to have so much computational capability on your telephone is just so exciting. It's just, although it means you can never hide, but you definitely are always working. But still, the technology has been fabulous. And then, of course, all of the algorithms that have been developed. And now we're moving into AI. I mean, it's just so exciting, you know, the time that we're living in and the oil and gas sector is a place where we really can, Maximize and in fact, uh, burn out memory. That was the first thing that would happen, was there was never enough memory to solve some of these calculations, the modeling calculations, that would integrate, you know, sort of natural systems with engineered systems, right? I mean engineering calculations, we kind of know those and measure the data or whatever. But trying to describe a reservoir in mathematical terms so that you put it into the computer. Was, you know, that was really, really the work. So this, this little, uh, machine would sort of, uh, you'd punch a dot and it would give you a location. You move over and put a non- punch another dot and you'd sort of dot your way around, you know, the shape of the reservoir, if you will, something like
0: that, you know, over the maps. It was very tedious. And so now it's just everything's digitized. Now it's just so exciting. No, it is exciting. It's, it's exciting and amazing how far technology has come, come in, even just in such a short space of time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So who was your role model, and why did you find them inspirational? Oh, gosh.
1: So I, I don't know that I would have one role model. I guess my, my first role model, my first two role models were my parents. My parents worked very hard. Uh, my mother was brilliant um, and my father was very, very keen. My, my mother was, uh, I want to say, book smart and my father was street smart. Perhaps that's the way to, the way to put it. And so they they worked very hard. They provided you know, everything we needed to be successful. They was very encouraging. And so they did not go to college, but they sent me to college. They sent us to college. And that was, you know, that was kind of the best thing, although I didn't know what I wanted to major in when I first started in school. And in the end, I, I ended up changing majors like six times. My dad finally cut me off and said, you're gonna have to finish.
0: <laughs> and I
1: did. <laughs> and I did. But um, so so in terms of actual, you know, people, I would have to say my parents were my greatest uh, role models. But I, I often say this to people when I'm coaching or mentoring, and as I say, you know, you don't have just one mentor. You should have the world as your mentor. Anyone that you think has something that you want, you know, watch them, track them, you know, talk with them, engage with them. It doesn't have to be a formalized mentorship relationship for you to learn what you want to learn from them. So in that respect, I've had, you know, hundreds of mentors, including people who did things that I didn't, I don't think there were good things to do or, you know, bad examples of behavior. And so you would learn not to do, I learned not to do that just by watching sort of the impact of, of, of of their interactions with people. So, yeah, I've had, you know, I want to say a million men- uh, mentors and coaches and role models, and I'm still open and uh, watching for, for more as we continue to grow as I continue to grow.
0: Okay. If you were going to be mentored by anybody, even now or during your early career, who would it, who would it be? That's a good question. Gosh, I'm really stuck on that i'm trying to think of who
1: so you know who i think about although i'm not really you know following you know that carefully although we can't ignore you know the president of ukraine his courage from not being a formally trained person in the area of history and politics and those things that prepare you for public service being an actor, certainly an observer, keen observer of people, I guess is what you put it. But to have him take on that challenge of you know, running for president, being president, starting to run for president, and then to face such a formidable foe who has who is able to, like, stare down people, much less attack people. So the, his courage and uh, his uh, willingness to put – his life has so much of himself in front of the world on behalf of his people, People, leadership in a way that you don't see often. And so right now, that's who I'm impressed by that, that kind of courage to just don't give up, just stand your ground and don't give up and continue to, um, to push for, you know, for what you need.
0: So that, I guess that's who that would be. Okay. No, he is quite amazing, actually. I do agree. So what is the most challenging thing in your career that you've had? Oh, gosh, there's so many challenges.
1: <laughs> you know, you don't work, you know, this long in such, a, um, in such a highly visible, necessary field like oil and gas and not face challenges. I guess early on, from a personal point of view figuring out what I would do with my life where I studied. I told you I changed majors so many times. The reason I changed so many times was because I I had a lot of options, but I also was looking for something that would really consume me, really would take all of my capabilities and really challenge me, you know, intellectually, you know, physically, emotionally. And I couldn't find anything that really caught me that much it and that's because I had never been exposed to real science. I'd never been exposed to real scientists. I um, mean, mm-hmm. All the people that I encountered who were in those kinds of spaces were all men. I never saw women. I never saw Hispanic women, you know, in those those kinds of exciting research areas or scientific areas. I remember I was a Girl Scout and I would go for, I mean, the most interesting badge I went after was the geology badge. You need to collect rocks and compare them and, and like that. And I, and, and I thought that was interesting. I, you know, was, you know, kind of sciencey, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, when I started my first major was in business administration, that didn't do it for me, especially when there were so few women in business. They were mostly men. And in those days, you know, college was a different kind of, place. I mean, people would smoke in the classroom. My classes were mostly men and they were, it's like good old boy time. I mean, this is a long, long time ago good old boy time. So so women just really didn't have a voice, didn't have a space. And then it was early on, it was in the early seventies. And I remember my marketing class in business, the professor said to me, well, you know, Ms. Subia, what is the female point of view on this question? I was 19. I didn't know <laughs> what my own opinion was on many things, much less that representing my whole gender. So so, you know, that didn't work out for me. And I kept looking, looking, looking. And I finally stumbled um, on science was related to horticulture plants and what makes plants grow fertilizers. And then, you know, what's fertilizer?'s was part of enhancing the soil. Oh, soil. Oh, so then I started learning about soil as part of, you know, curriculum. And I realized that is what I like. It's it's complicated. It's chemical, physical, biological properties. And that's just laying there. You start having human interaction with it and you can really change and amend and and uh, work with it. And it has so many uses. It has so many. It plays such a role in, in life. I mean, it was just it started to fit all of the things that were important to me. So um, so when I got into oil and gas, I was kind of concerned about, I mean, only knowing, you know, California, not even knowing the rest of the country, and then certainly not having started a career with respect to international, I was kind of saying, well, you know, big oil, you know, people aren't really enamored of big oil or whatever. I started understanding that oil energy is life. And if you don't have the energy that you need, you cannot pursue, you know, your highest self. So I heard someone recently say, "If you lo- if you know how to read, think a teacher. But if you know how to read at night, think your teacher and your energy worker, <laughs> because without light at night, how could you ever get past your chores of the day and then be able to like even just read, just learn, much less learn higher learning and apply your highest self to some of the world's greatest problems." So. So now when I talk about, you know, oil, gas and being an energy professional, I, people ask me what you do. And I say, well, I'm happy. I'm helping to end world poverty because you have to have energy for anything that you do. And I help supply the world with energy.
0: That's a good message.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of what I do. I love, you know, this sector. I love what we do. So. I
0: do too. I do too. Because I was just thinking I could relate to a lot of what you were saying, especially when I started out as an engineer as well, going to university I was what maybe one of the only females that was in the university classes. How did you actually find that um in petroleum engineering working, so I guess it
1: was part of you know life, the women's movement or you know the whole notion of Gender equality and all that really wasn't. It was just in the early stages. There was just so much still traditional point of view and and roles for women or whatever. So it was it was that time of change, but it certainly wasn't. I remember my first job, my first time. I'm not going to say where. I wore a dress to work, oil business, and someone whistled at me, and I thought, you know, I thought we were past that, right? It it wasn't. uh, It was. It was hard it was hard. And um, I don't know, I think, you know, women have always had to, you know, put their best foot forward and really rise to the challenge of of being challenged. But, you know, academically, you know, education really helps equalize everyone. And so being able to hold my own in a technical discussion gave me confidence. And, you know, the more I did it, the more comfortable I became. And that's, this, that's just how, you know, I think everyone, you know, rises, I, you know, certainly male engineers who go and get into a technical debate or whatever, they have to all hold their own as well. I think women have to be a little bit better, but, but that's not the point. I mean, it really is about getting into, I want to say the, the facts and the science and the measurements and like that, those kinds of technical discussions, you know, we're really, you know, using all that you have. Those are the, those are the challenges that I enjoy. And those are the challenges that I learned a lot from. So, okay. but it was tough. It was tough in the beginning. Of course, now I go, I just got back from the offshore technology conference, which is the largest oil and gas show in the world, as you know. And it's the only place where there's not a line in front of the women's room, even though there's thousands of people there. and There are a lot, a lot of women, but I used to go to OTC and I'd see like, I don't know, two or three women for every hundred, right? Just a very small percentage. Now I'm not quite seeing half, but I'm certainly seeing like a good third plus of the participants there were women and certainly lots of women on the um, technical program presenting papers and the like. So that, that's always very exciting, but that's one of the key places that I notice, you know, how many more women there are in the in the oil and gas sector.
0: Yeah, because I'm I'm linked in with quite a lot of female engineers as well. So there is quite a lot of them coming through now, which is a good, it's good and an exciting thing to see as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And all that uh,
1: young brains and energy to, you know, tackle the tough challenges we still have. So.
0: Yeah. You were saying before that you said that you needed a job that was really going to be in- challenging for you to use all your skills do you think that's really important to have in a job
1: yeah i do i do well um let me let me start again i do i think that that's important for me and the fact that i am a high energy person i just have to be doing something i have to keep it thinking keep it keep it moving i mean you know uh everybody's not the same you know we need you know people who are comfortable with with jobs that don't take so much energy, but they last longer. I mean, I get bored easy. I guess that's my thing is I get bored easy. So I, I have to keep, you know, keep pushing uh, on that, but I'm grateful for people who have far more patience (laughs) for the longer, the longer term. I mean, Talk about sprinters and marathoners, right? I'm definitely the sprinter type, but you definitely need the marathoners as well. So, so for me, yeah, I think it's important. And I think the more that you of yourself that you can bring to the workspace, then the more satisfying. And then there's the ethical side of work, right? The more of yourself, the more of your honor, the more of your values that you, that you bring to your work. Then I mean that's that's real important, I think, for everyone. That's part of
0: humanity. Okay. Excellent. Is there anything that you still want to achieve in your career, even though you've retired? Yeah. Is there anything I still want to achieve? Well, I have a lot of
1: accomplishments. I guess I am, I'm really happy right now. You know, when you're working, you know, in a professional setting, it, you know. You really don't end at five o'clock or whatever. You know, you just, you're just, you know, because it's brain candy. So I I love that brain candy, but it can, it can get ahead of you. You can be like working too much, like workaholism or whatever. I mean, I don't want to, don't want to be there right now. I'm working on really, really fun projects, including the podcast. The podcast is a lot of fun too. I'm working on a lot of really fun projects that take, take time, but they don't take up all of my time. And so I am learning a little bit more how to slow down a little bit more, taking on, you know, engaged in more community activities. I'm more active in my church. I'm more active in politics. Well, I couldn't be, I was not allowed to be active in politics when I was working for the government. But now that I'm not working for the government, I can explore that a little bit more. Supporting causes that I believe in. that's, That's a real important thing. And as it turns out, in some of that volunteer work, a lot of the skills that I learned while I was working have come into play. So I think that I'm actually, I didn't think about it until you asked me, it. I think I'm actually in this place where I have the right work-life balance that I always wanted to have. And so, and so now I have it and that's kind of good. I'm so glad you asked me that question because I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, I'm happy now. So in terms of, do I want to achieve that? I guess I want things for my daughter, you know, I want her to be able to build her career and, you know, do the things that she wants to do. And so I'm, I'm coaching, I'm
0: mentoring her. So that's, so I'm doing that. So I think, I think I'm there. I think I'm there. So you were saying, what is your biggest achievement that you, that you think that you've had? Through. Oh, my
1: biggest achievement in my life yeah. is having a good, strong marriage. We've been married forty-one years, and in um, forty-two in October, and and we have a wonderful, beautiful daughter who's an astronautics engineer, and she's married now to a wonderful person, and so they're happy, and they just bought their their first house. So, um, so my my family, I think, is you know my greatest achievement, contributing oh, my greatest achievement. We wanted to have more children, we weren't blessed that way, but we're grateful for the daughter that we did have
0: no that's amazing that's really a nice message actually a family is really important it's really important to me as well actually
1: yeah
0: have you had any career disasters oh career disasters you know um
1: i probably have and i'll think about it as i'm talking here and see if i can come up with a good example but words like disaster i try to catastrophe I try to take them out of my vocabulary and I tried to do that early on because when you've got a problem you've got a challenge you got to deal with something I mean there's no magic wand that's going to make it go away I mean you just have to work through things you have to work through it what's right and I realized that the language I use to myself even kind of frames it in a way that's not it adds negative emotion rather than freeing up creative energies. And so I try to take those words out of my out of my vocabulary. But gosh, well you know working for the government, I served seven presidents. And so the the president's uh, goals and objectives are always you know what were what were in play. So disasters I guess catastrophes, they weren't my catastrophes, they were mostly their catastrophes. And then I would be part of, you know, the team to help, um, to help build. Did you say catastrophes or career catastrophes? So it was career, probably not, but actually I was part of the Deepwater Horizon, the President's Commission on the Deepwater Horizon. So that was a tragedy that happened. And that was a very painful experience, but I
0: forgot which dude you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I ha- I <laughs> I asked you, do you, have you had any career disasters? Yeah, yeah. So I would say no.
1: I would say my uh, I'm trying to trying to think. I mean, you know, I moved to Bakersfield, moved to Washington DC. Uh, I didn't have any setbacks, so I would have to say no career disasters. Maybe if anything, I would say that being, a, you know, such a supporter for oil and gas that I, you know, really, as I grew my career, as I learned and understood more the role of oil and gas in terms of overall energy, um, and then finding that the latest administration that I worked for, the last administration I worked for, was less than supportive of oil and gas, then that was part of my decision to retire. I certainly had been retirement eligible for a long time before I, before I actually retired, um it was it was kind of like not so much fun anymore so I think so I think you know retiring was certainly not something that I would have done quite yet if I'd been uh if there had been more support for oil and gas but it was I wouldn't call that a disaster or, you know catastrophe or anything it was just something you know and then when I started my company Energia Consulting I realized I probably should have done this a long time ago because I made having
0: so much fun. So that's the other thing. Okay. If you were going to hire anybody in your previous roles, what kind of skills and uh, attributes would you look for in a person?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the fit to the culture, I think, is what is the most important. in, in You know, in public service. Because the, the team that that uh, remains in place after administrations change to either continue um, you know, the direction that they were going in, if the administration was supportive of it, or to be able to pivot it uh, you know, with a new administration, that fit is really about a teamwork, a team. So if someone could have really fabulous technical skills, but if they didn't, play well with others, that that would be a showstopper. And, and, you know, having a team that's highly effective and the synergies of your skill sets are are really important. So so the main thing would be to have um, people who are, you know, honorable, you know, work hard and have respect for others such that they can, you know, play well with others and also bring out the best in others, um, their colleagues, their team members. That, that's the kind of you know, person I looked for, yeah.
0: No, that's amazing. That's amazing advice. Thank you. So what is your zone of genius? What are you really good at? I
1: am good at helping large, diverse groups of people move in the same direction. I discovered that when I was a Girl Scout leader for my daughter. <laughs> my daughter. I was a Girl Scout when I was young. And I wanted to bring that experience to my daughter. And of course I worked and a lot of the other mom's friends, you know, were not available during, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon when school would be over. So we were a weekend troop and we would meet once a month on the weekend on a Saturday and we did a lot of camping, but that's what, that's what we did. And I realized that you really have to help people find a reason to move in the direction that you want to want them to go. So that was what I, you know, that's what I learned then. And I and I am still able to do that. Um, help people move in the right, move in the same direction and help people understand, you know, what's stopping them or stopping others from moving in that direction.
0: How how would you typically do that though? Because that's Mm. like a quite a quite a difficult task to do, actually. It is a difficult task. It's a very difficult task. But first of all, you have to
1: establish relationship. People have to like you. You can't just tell somebody what to do. You know, volunteers are, you know, perfect example. You know, people don't have to do, you know, if you have position power because you're somebody's boss or you're paying somebody or whatever, that's different. But I'm talking about, you know, being able to work with people and understanding what is the common, common ground, common things that we have together. And then, you know, what it what's in it for them in terms of the larger goal. And it's very, you know, it's yeah, it's labor intensive, it's it's um relationship intensive, but it it really does involve connecting with people. And so I think I connect with people, I can connect with people, and so then that helps us, you know, kind of find that common ground and then able to move in that in that direction. Also, there's a certain element of organizational skill, being able to organize in a way that People don't feel like their time is being wasted, that there's some alignment with what they what they want to do or how they like to operate. And so setting, you know, just saying, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll figure it out. Okay, when you figure it out, you call me. <laughs> I'll let you know. But um, but having sort of a sort of a, a construct that's got enough framework for people to trust it, but yet enough flexibility that if something doesn't work out, then you are able to pivot. So, so I think, I mean, yeah, it's a hard work, but it's, but it's doable, but not everybody enjoys it. And I enjoy it. So that's the other part of it.
0: Okay. So how do you get people to, to typically trust you then? Well, I think that there's a certain element of authenticity. You know,
1: you present who you are and, you know, people are going to like you or they're not going to like, you and if they don't like you if there's a reason you can kind of work through that and find out what is it that that you like or don't like or whatever there's things about yourself that you can change or not change or adjust or or reflect but i think that most people are open to other people and but yeah you have to have that a certain, a certain level of trust and that trust comes
0: from presenting your authentic self that's amazing advice actually because being authentic is quite an important skill and asset that it is, that you should have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I understand what you're saying. The, um, it is, I want to say hard. It's not hard. It is, um, having, you know, knowing yourself and knowing your strengths and weaknesses and, you know, expressing your strengths and then with your weaknesses, having, you know, asking for help you know you don't you know everybody doesn't know everything few people know every nobody knows everything right and so that's we have our sort of specialty things and not everybody likes to do everything so so the notion of you know who you are and recognizing that you have weaknesses that you have faults that you're not perfect or whatever you know that's that humility I think comes across to people and and that's your authentic self. And, and yeah, some people are not happy with me. You know, some people don't like me. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. But I don't hold it against them. I still try to like them. <laughs> but being your authentic self, I think, is the, the easiest way to, to bring that connection. Once you have that connection, then there's a place
0: for forgiveness, you know, trust and forgiveness. So. I agree. I do agree. So, how does your well, how does your previous roles compare to your aspirations as a young girl? Oh, let's see. When I was a young girl,
1: I read all the time. I mean, I I was um I was born and raised until 12 years old in a city called Oceanside California. And it's everything that the name implies. It's paradise on earth, although I did not know it. It was a sleepy little beach town. It had a library. I mean, it had, you know, the basics or whatever, but I I wanted more. And so I would, so on Saturdays, I could walk to the library. I could walk to the beach, but most of the time I walked to the library and I would spend like all day there until my mother would come and pick me up because it was too late. You know, where are you? Where are you? And I read all the time and i couldn't get enough of all of these adventures that you know girls or kids would go on you know and i remember there was two sections to the library there was the kids entrance you know they had story time and all that stuff and then there was the grown-ups entrance and of course kids didn't go into the grown-up side but i remember i would go purposely go through the front door of the grown-up side to pass through the library in order to get to the kids section and I just remember how impressed I was with all of these books everywhere, books, 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 all this beautiful knowledge, I thought, all these wonderful things inside those books. And so I always wanted something to do with those books. And I played teacher, you know, at home when I was when I was younger. I would, I would be the teacher, whatever books we had in the house, notepads or whatever, and I'd set them up. I'd have like a desk, right? And I'd set up all my dolls and whatever to be my students and all that stuff. So That sounds funny now, but now I've seen the parallels. I love talking with people. I love sharing what I know and I love learning new things. And so that brings in the research that I, you know, I'm so fond of. It brings in the podcast thing about, you know, talking with people and, and it's, you know, integrated in a, in a way that I didn't, you know, I was living it when I was, when I was younger. But I'm still living it now. So I
0: think that's I, I actually grew up to do what I always wanted to do, as it turns out. No, that's amazing because not a lot of people get to do that though. Well, people- I didn't do it on purpose. I mean, it, it ended up that way. I kept making choices, I think, that would of the things
1: that I like. And it just kept it just kept building. I don't know that I could have ever fashioned a career the way that I that I did. It just was lucky and 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 I took advantage of the opportunities.
0: Okay, do you think that you need a certain percentage of luck to be really successful though? Or- I think that you
1: I think that luck is something that how can I say this? preparation is what you need, right? Pursuing something, mastering your craft, if you will. That is important. So then when an opportunity comes up comes along, you're able to take advantage of it to someone who doesn't know how long you've prepared or how long you've wanted or or whatever been like positioning yourself. Someone doesn't know that it's it looks like luck. So I do think that certain yeah, you have to have the right place at the right time for opportunities that that kind of luck. Um, but you also have to be, you know, prepared so that when something comes up, you're able to take advantage of it.
0: Okay. Because not a lot of people take advantages of some opportunities that, that come that come across their way.
1: I agree. I agree. That is the saddest thing for someone to not take advantage. For and usually people don't take advantage. I have found that people don't take advantage because they don't because they fear. They're afraid. They're holding themselves back because they think they have to be perfect in order to take advantage of the opportunity. And you don't, you just have to have a certain amount of confidence in yourself that whatever it is you're, you're going to learn and that, you know, people are going to want you to be successful and you just keep working hard and, and you will kind of like get there. You'll grow into the, grow into the position. You don't have to be perfect before you start. So I think there's a certain amount of that.
0: I I agree. Actually, I do agree. I think a fear holds a lot of people back. From taking on new, new roles or opportunities,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I almost didn't. I almost didn't.
1: So, so with my with my well with my uh, consultancy, my husband saw me like listening to webinars and things on technical things or whatever, anything that was like advertised a link thing to SPE or whatever, and he said, you know, you really should just. Start some sort of a consultant. You should, you know, you know so many people, you know so many things, people, people want to know. And I, you know, I said, no, 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 no. But the more he encouraged me, the more I thought about it, I said, okay, okay, I will found a business, I'll get some business cards, and then I'll start, you know, seeing what happens. And then it came to, and so that was like March and April of 2021, uh, 2022. and then it came to registration for OTC. And I, I just thought, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't go to OTC because for the past 20 years at OTC, I was either a presenter, a moderator, uh, hosting someone, you know, uh, of a dignitary from Washington to come and kind of experience OTC and, and like that. And I was I was always saying it was the first year to, after COVID, right? It was the first big year where people were returning to OTC and I wasn't going to be there and I was just so frustrated. And. He says, well, what's the matter? I go, I said, well, everybody's going to be in OTC. I'm going to be left down. And he says, well, why don't you go? I go, well, what am I going to do there? He says, well, you've got a company. Take those business cards and share them with people. Tell them about your company and that kind of thing. So I almost didn't go to OTC. And, and I ended up picking up my first client at OTC. So you know I should I, I'm, I'm glad that I went I'm, I'm glad that people were so receptive to it. I'm mostly grateful to my husband for encouraging me. So people have to have a support system, I think as well. It's hard to do it all by yourself, especially when you're taking a real scary step, which you think is
0: scary? I think so too. I think it's important to have a have a good support system and I think also even if you think that an opportunity, that presents itself is going to be scary. It's probably not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you completely. Yes, it's not going to be as bad as you think, because you can really think of scary things. (laughs) A few things are that scary. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: true. Yeah. So what's the scariest thing you've ever had happen to you then during your career?
1: Oh, going to the White House was the scariest thing I, I ever did. I wanted to go. There was certainly a contribution that I could make. But after working in the government and understanding how you know things work or whatever, and and the White House is a separate space, being you know I want to say temporary, you know four eight years at the most, lots of change, lots of transition, things, lots of moving parts, and so I was I was a little anxious about that, but I but I did it, and I realized you know it's really you you have to bring your A plus game and you have to bring your physical stamina and um and you really have to be able to work well with others i mean that that really is a success path um but i didn't know that i thought everybody there was going to be smarter than me younger than me and you know just better than me and always because it was the white house and so that was that was a scary thing but i was i was encouraged and i and i went and it was uh it was six months but it was, it was really exciting and gave me a lot of insights
0: to how the world works. In fact, you know, power, how power happens and, and moves things and people. That's exciting. For me, that would be exciting to, to go, even to just go to the White House would be exciting. But yeah, to yeah. work there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It must have been it's a, a,
1: a really hard job. <laughs> it's a really hard job. There is no downtime, no downtime, because anything can happen all over the anywhere in the world, anything can happen. And somebody has to respond, right? Some, some way, even if it's just advising, you know, the president, but you don't just advise, you, you have to come up with options. You have to like think it through. So it was really, really hard work. And I just, I'm really um grateful of the people who spend the time doing that in the career, but I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you see this kind of turnover in your government, but in, in our government, there's always, you know, a, a turnover. People will do something for so long and then they'll stop. And it's kind of like, well, why did they stop? Because it's such a demanding place to be that people, people move on for, for a good reason, right? it's just, you, you do the most that you can. And then every six months, the world changes every six months. So you're constantly working really hard doing something. And then you've got to, rise to the occasion for something else. And then six months later, rise to the occasion for something else. It's, it's hard. It's hard
0: at that level. And I'm grateful that
1: people are willing to serve.
0: Okay. No, I think, I think that would be amazing. No, I just think it would be an amazingly exciting, exciting role to be in, to work in the White House. And I did actually hear that working in politics can be really char- challenging as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I I I served in a technical role advising people about technical options related to oil and gas and then that information went to the the political, you know, actors, obviously the president. So, but what uh, what I did was I helped developed the National Energy Policy for the Bush Cheney Energy Task Force and it was related to oil and gas technology. And so it was. Um, it was. It was. It was hard. It was hard work. It was exhausting work. But I'm. I'm happy I did that. And then I was happy to go back to the Department of Energy. And of course, that gave me insights that I did not have before. And so my work at uh,
0: the Department of Energy was also enhanced. But that's a huge role, though, so, that you did. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. <laughs> a huge role and quite a lot of to to have. To have done that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I didn't do it alone, right? I mean, I worked with people from the various agencies to have, that have a role in oil and gas. And, of course, that was exciting to, you know, work with really smart people and, you know, something I really enjoy working on and, and like that. So, yeah, it was a privilege. It was definitely a
0: privilege. So what was the biggest lesson that you took away from working there?
1: I guess I didn't realize how... 7 365, the work is. You know, when you're when you're part of, you know, that level of government, you you can't sleep. I mean, you know, things are always happening. Just at a minimum, I our time difference, right? I'm I'm, you know, what uh almost two o'clock and what time are you there? Two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, um, eight o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, so just the time change, I'm, you know, still peaking at my energy level. You're probably ready to call it a day soon. And, and, and so sort of that things happen while you're asleep. You come up the next morning and something happened, you know, those kinds of things. So there's always this kind of readiness posture that you need to be
0: in. So it was, it was tough. It was tough. But that must be really tough to even just live in that, even just for a short period of time, though. It was, it was. I was, um, my daughter was eight years old, seven years old. Uh, so
1: that was a really, it was a hard time. It was, it was a rigorous time, I want to say. It was a challenge. I loved it, but I was, I was satisfied <laughs> with my work and I was, I was happy to move on when the project was over. So, so it was, uh, it was a good, it was a good thing. And actually I was there in um, 2021, middle of 2021 and then, you know, before September, so I, before September 11th, and so I was back at the Department of Energy uh, on September 11th, and I kept thinking about the people in the White House, how there was just, you know, what were they thinking? What were they doing? How are they going to manage? You know, it was it was a very scary time for the, the whole world, the country, certainly. Very scary time. You know, I, I was happy that I was not in a, in that environment during that time, that I was in a more... A predictable more stable environment at the time um, but it was yeah that was scary well, i still i still have thoughts of it because i was at pentagon city which is a a um a place of uh, hotels and shopping and in, in pentagon city out just outside of the pentagon just just beyond the pentagon like a mile from the pentagon i mean not far and so i was at a hotel at a conference at pentagon city on september 11th the morning of and when the plane hit the um, pentagon you know i felt the first shock right and then the compression wave as well so but i i didn't know what it was it was kind of like a boom boom kind of a kind of a thing and we didn't know what it was and it was on fire and we were saying well what's over there well there's nothing over as the pentagon well it's not the pentagon what could be over there it could be on fire so come to a story unfolded, and you know, we learned everything. We realized just how close to danger we truly were. So I'm glad I wasn't at the White House and I was at uh I was out of the central part of the of um, of um DC and out in Virginia already. So the metro just put metro buses in place and evacuated, evacuated as many people. To Virginia to Maryland, that's good fit. But I mean, standing room only on, on these buses because the metro was not running, you know, through D.C. anymore. So just trying to, like, scatter, get out, get away from
0: town. It was a scary day. It would have been a scary day. It would have been a scary day. It would have been even hectic and maybe... I can't even think of words to say. It must have been really challenging for the White House and everybody who had to deal with trying to get a solution for that. Right, right,
1: right. And, of course, they, they put the president in the air, you know, get him out of the way. And I guess there's protocols. I mean, obviously there's protocols. But it was something that was really never before before experience so there was a lot of people rising to the occasion to come up with solutions and then so many people were hurt so there was a lot of you know a lot of emergencies on many sides
0: yeah let's talk about something else (laughs) I know say because I can't even believe that you were near near yeah you were quite close to I was quite close to it. Yeah, I was quite close to it.
1: And we had so many people from work out of town, like in either other cities or even other countries. And so then most people had a challenge to try to get back home because planes were not flying. So so there was a lot of disruption. Um, you know, children were afraid. We went to pick up our daughter at school and brought her home. But then all we could do was like watch the television to see what was going on. So that if there was something else going to happen, that we would be, you know, kind of, you know, aware. So, yeah, it was a very, very scary period. And I'm grateful that uh, and hope we never see anything like that again.
0: No, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Wow. So what would your, if you were going to encourage anybody to come into the energy sector, what advice would you give them?
1: Well, first, I'd encourage them that energy is fundamental to life, right? I mean, we eat food because we need the energy and we have various energy forms in order to work, to do to do things. So I'd say energy is a wonderful sector to come into. I Next, I would say that any part of the economy that you're interested in, You know, if you're interested in business, if you're interested in accounting, if you're interested in marketing, if you're interested in uh, analytics, if you're interested in computers, if you're interested in working outside, you know, working in science, any aspect, medical field, any aspect of the economy that you'd be interested in working in, there's a place for it in the energy sector and including the oil and gas sector. And I'd say that there are so, I mean, as research goes forward, there are so many more opportunities. Sticking specifically with the oil and gas sector, the skill sets that we have in petroleum engineering, petroleum geology, the geosciences, all have a place in continued oil and gas, obviously, increasing ultimate recovery as the most dense fuel, but also for geothermal, also, also for carbon storage. There are so many applications for the kinds of skill sets that we have in the oil and gas sector. So energy is wonderful and oil and gas is wonderful as far as
0: career um, pathways. So if you could turn back time, would you change anything?
1: I think I would have start, yes. I I lost a lot of time not realizing that science was an option, that science was gonna appeal to me so much. So I don't know what I could have done about that because it, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know. But that would be the one thing that um, I wish I, you know, could have gotten started sooner. The other part is I wish I had spent more time with my parents. They're gone now. And so that, you know, that is, uh, you always think that, you know, oh, tomorrow. Okay, well, next week. Oh, well, you know. Time just gets away from you. Time just passes so quickly. So, I would, I would, yeah, I would, I would have spent more time with my parents and helping them understand what I do. <laughs> they were, they really didn't understand oil and gas to the like reservoir engineering they understood that you go to the gas station you fill up you know the gas they understood that you turn on the light switch and you have energy but what it takes to get energy the supply chain the value chain and then all the different forms that was something that really wasn't wasn't really interesting to them but um 'Cause they just, you know, we're consumers like most, you know, Americans are, just consumers and not really thinking about, about that. So that would that would be the other thing too, to have them teach them more about what I do.
0: Okay. Interesting. <laughs> it's amazing. No, you're your all your all your answers are amazing. I have to say that. It's been an amazing interview, actually. Oh <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> One final question, actually. I think to think of it, if you could go back in time, what, what is one piece of advice you would give yourself, your younger self? Oh, I think I would
1: give myself the advice that I've given to others about don't hold back, be bold, be brave. That that that's the one thing I would probably tell myself because I didn't tell myself enough of it. Other people told me, but you know, if you don't think of it yourself, sometimes you kind of like hold back. And so that I would have listened to that more fully. You know, listen to people encouraging you. And also don't hold back. Don't hold back. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. That's that's what I've told myself earlier in life.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And that is amazing advice. It's been an amazing interview, actually. You Thank have you. so much knowledge. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. I just like to talk a lot. you're very kind I have enjoyed myself it's been amazing so that's all the questions I have today I would like to thank Elena for your time my pleasure my pleasure that brings us to the end of another episode thanks for listening and see you next week that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.